A Seal Upon My Heart Dante in the Streetcars By Sister Kristen O.S.B. If it hadn't been for Dante in the Pennsylvania Avenue streetcars, this would probably be my thirteenth year at the National Catholic Welfare Conference Bureau of Immigration in Washington, D.C., but six words from Dante had fixed themselves in my mind, and after days tingling with excitement at the office, there were the long rides home on the streetcars. Now the black serge habit the bishop blessed for me one bright June morning in ten years old, and reinforced along the pleats with hundreds of tiny stitches. I was a junior here in the College of St. Benedict in St. Joseph's, Minnesota, when I studied Dante's Divine Comedy. For the first time, it opened up a new world and a new heaven. My eyes followed St. Bernard's, upward pointing to the light which is God. Light, intellectual, full charged with love, love of true good, full charged with gladness, gladness which transcends every sweetness. Like Dante himself, at the end of the last canto of the Paradiso, my desire and will were rolled, even as a wheel that moveth equally, by the love that moves the sun and the other stars. The bookbinders trimmed my marginal notes when they put on a new cover last year, and even though the last letters are gone, I can tell from the way I wrote at the bottom of page 601. In his will is our peace. That I put on an exclamation mark after the word. Those six words lodged in my mind like a tiny stone in an oyster shell, and later they brought on as much irritation. After the Dante course was over, I was sold on doing God's will. Sisters have been known to corner likely prospects and suggest the possibility of a religious vocation. Bent as I was on doing God's will— Attached as I was to St. Benedict's, I believe I would have transferred to another college if anyone had mentioned enter or other side or none to me, as was being done to one or two of my classmates. I wasn't frightened of vocation. I had grown up in a tiny town in northwestern North Dakota, where we Catholics were few and where a nun was not one of the things a young girl wanted to be. I just didn't want spring to be spoiled by embarrassing nonsense. Exactly what God's will might involve became a problem only when we were college seniors and everyone else in class had accepted either a contract or a ring. Much as marriage appealed to me, I knew I didn't really love the fellows who had ring ideas. I knew I'd enjoy teaching but I longed to live at home for a while with my widowed mother, my two brothers and sisters, after hardly seeing them for years. Teaching in the District of Columbia would require an M.A. We couldn't afford that. When retreat time came, I discovered for the first time that I had a problem to take to the retreat master. I'm still thanking God for what Father Godfrey Dykeman, OSB, a monk from St. John's Abbey, four miles away, an editor of Arate Fratres, now worship, did to rouse us to a full sharing in the Mass. At the offertory, you're up to bat. Don't be sleeping on the job, he urged us. Once you've put yourself on that patent, stay given. 
There must be no theft in the Holocaust. Everything he said was geared to our being live Christian laywomen. I knew he couldn't tell me how I was supposed to know what God's will for me was. I made it clear that I felt no attraction at all for the religious life. It was a neat, I'm not the type statement. He took me at my word and didn't bother to tell me that there was no type. What he didn't say was simple and settling. There will come a time when you'll know God's will by two signs, by a strong inner conviction and by external circumstances. I knew that Father Godfrey was right. I went home to wait for the signs. An army colonel for whom I had done secretarial work during two summers in the military attache section of G2 had written that I might come back to the munitions building any time. But when I kept seeing the eager or bored or mischievous faces of high school classes I had loved in weeks practice teaching, I went to see Agnes Collins, director of Teacher Placement Bureau at the National Catholic Welfare Conference Department of Education. She gave me the telephone number of two Washington parochial school principals. Just as I was leaving, she said, Wait, Bruce Moeller needs a secretary. You're too young for the job, but he's desperate. She took me to the Bureau of Immigration office on the fifth floor. Riding home on a streetcar that night, I knew, deep inside and from circumstances, that I have found my place. I knew God's will. I knew it would be easy to love it. It was. I worked with people of heroic stature, Layman completely devoted to serving Christ and the immigrant. Into our office came a constant stream of visitors, people like the Portuguese sailor about to be deported for illegal residence, cut off from his wife and the American-born children. Like the Austrian professor-philosopher fleeing the Nazis, desperately in need of a permanent U.S. visa, the big Italian longshoreman for whom the longed-for American citizenship finally attained was cause for tears. The American cardinal, whose yard-long passport pages needed visas for twenty countries. The endless groups of missionaries counting on us to secure passports, visas, and transportation on every part of the world. Every day was alive with people, the Argentinian with papers in his shoes instead of socks, able to explain brilliantly why he didn't believe in working, able to weep like a child because the government wouldn't permit him to return to this country if he went home to see his dying mother. The Irishman Pat, who had come on his brother Mike's passport, suddenly discovered to be Pat and not Mike, when Mike himself arrived as Mike. The princely Archbishop Glennon, the charming publisher Frank Sheed, bravely crossing the Atlantic when it was dangerous to do so, the friendly bishop who, eager to put office girls at their ease, kept their rings hidden until Mr. Moeller in entered with an It's good to see you, bishop. Our cases were endless, varied, and often emergent. I had grown well acquainted with immigration procedure and legislation and I was at home in the passport and visa office of the State Department, the waiting rooms of foreign embassies. It was a good life, demanding and satisfying, 
Every day we had tangible evidence that we had helped people in critical need. Nothing would have pried me away from that office if it hadn't been for Dante and the streetcars. Early in my NCWC days, Margaret Lynch, Executive Secretary of the National Council of Catholic Women, had invited me to go with her on an oblate meeting at St. Anselm's Priory. Father Thomas Werner Moore, the famous psychologist, now a Carthusian, conducted the monthly meetings giving a spiritual conference in the Priory Chapel, pouring tea for us in the school afterward, finally leading us to the nearby St. Gertrude's for a holy hour. Those monthly sessions and my own reading kept me in touch with the rule of St. Benedict. More and more it became clear that if one wanted to be absolutely certain of doing God's will, one needed someone guaranteed to be a spokesman for that will. One needed a superior. For a while I thought my mother might do. We were great friends. She is holy and wise and would have done anything to help me. But we saw eye to eye, and I had no assurance that I was doing anyone's will but my own. For a while I thought of a husband, that that was the answer. God would bless a wife who chose to do her husband's will. Every night as I walked from the bus stop through a three-block stretch of woods, I prayed hard for the man I would marry, asking God to prepare him, whoever he was, to help me do his will. Wartime Washington was crowded, rushing, and weary. Especially between five and six in the evening was it crowded, rushing, and weary. I rode home beside it on the streetcars and buses. I looked into its eyes. I saw its tired faces, sensed its aching shoulders, shared its aching from standing eight hours across town feet. After I heard its chatter, suddenly relaxed after eight hours of intense stimulation, I was an easy victim to any powerful influence. The weariness and misery of the crowds that packed the aisles beside me entered into my whole system. The shallowness of what most of them had to say to one another was a real weight on me. I am sure their lives were not really empty. I know now that God is terribly interested in their affairs, no matter how inconsequential their conversations seemed to be. I am sure, too, that there were great men and women, real saints, riding beside me. But those long rides, now inching, now swaying down Pennsylvania Avenue, were a constant reminder of the possibility of missing the real mark. I was seeing and hearing and smelling what had been an abstract truth in college classrooms. Many among those crowds did not even know that God's will exist, much less that it is the only real norm to which man needs to conform. It was obvious that the most of them were not at peace, even with themselves. Night after night, as they unwittingly or apologetically pushed against me, they forced me back to Dante in the question I didn't want to consider. How can I be sure I'm doing God's will? I didn't want to consider it for two reasons. First, I wanted to remain content in my work. I had become a real part of the Bureau. I knew I was doing the, a great job. 
I realized I was working for the church and that should be satisfying for me. Second, I was beginning to fear that I had a religious vocation. I certainly didn't pray for it, nor did I thank God for it. I cried and felt very stupid when I told my mother about it. I did everything to talk myself out of it, even up to the time I was packing my trunk. At that time, I had written to Mother Rosamond and returned the application blank to the scholasticate. But I kept telling myself I was still free. I had made no commitments. I didn't have to go. And then on the streetcar, in his will is our peace. I did have to go. I knew from the sure inner conviction that only in a religious community could I be sure I was doing God's will. I knew from external circumstances, too. I had finished paying college bills. I had helped Mother buy a house. There was nothing to hold me back except my own revulsion. After two years, I resigned from the Bureau of Immigration, drank my last cocktail, and left by beloved family and the lovely house on Hillcrest Drive. I couldn't show a spark of enthusiasm, natural or supernatural, for the life I was choosing. I only knew that I had to choose it. Once in the scholasticate here, I tried not to look as I pulled on the black stockings. My aspirant's uniform, beautifully pleated, trimmed with white collar and cuffs, hung beneath my coat and often clung to my cotton-stockinged legs. Delighted as I was to be at home at St. Benedict's, I found it hard to respond to the enthusiastic congratulations of the sisters. Tremendous graces came to the rescue in a hurry. One can, in words of a nun, friend whom I had confided my distaste for everything about convent life, at least as I supposed it would be, she said simply, God doesn't ask that we do his will with emotion or enthusiasm. He only asks that we do it. That was simple enough. Another came in the form of three divisions of freshman college English. It was easy to be enthusiastic about teaching beautiful girls who were eager to learn. Before long, I didn't notice the black stockings and the uniforms. By Christmas time, I had accepted the external so completely that I couldn't understand why people in the train stared at me. Those months as a postulant must have been flooded with grace, for when June came, I knew that I was indeed a bride walking down the chapel aisle. I was eager to lean my curly hair toward the bishop's scissors, and I kissed the blessed habit with real joy. It was only in the novitiate that I discovered that this life must be an intense love affair and not simply a resignation to a necessity. I learned, too, that once religious vows are made, the simplest good act is transformed, lifted above the natural to a new plane of excellence. I began to see what the Lord meant by the hundredfold in this life. The joys and the griefs of the community life opened up. After four years of high school teaching and a year away at college, I know that my very salvation depended on my being knit to my community. My whole concept of the religious life was broadened and deepened. When I made final vows in 1950, I was so eager and deeply happy as any bride could be. 
but my reason for being a nun had not changed. Much as the community needs teachers, much as the church needs sisters for every kind of work, I have still only one reason for being here. I know with absolute certitude that when I obey my religious superiors, I do the will of God. That means I am one with Him in the deepest, surest way possible. What I do and how I feel about it does not matter at all, really. My superiors are human and can make mistakes, but I can't possibly make a mistake by obeying them. I have the word of God and of His church that it is so. As long as I obey, I do His will, and in the midst of great turmoil, I have the peace Dante was talking about, the peace the streetcar drove me to seek. The End I think I'll stop the book now because there are some more stories, but I think we've done enough of this book. And I've really enjoyed it. I remember it from when I was younger and the story about the streetcar I still remember today. It, It's one of those ones that you remember. I love the way all the girls in this uh, were so different. You know, they all were so different. They came from different backgrounds. Some of them came from big families. Some of them came from small families. Some of them didn't want to be nuns. Some always wanted to be nuns. It was really cute. I, I liked it a lot. Um, and I did want to clarify one point. In the one where the girl was from Hawaii, she said she was baptized as Rachel. And then later on, when she became Catholic, she was baptized, you might say, again. Well, you can only be baptized once, and it's because in the Catholic or Christian faith, you are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And the Mormons say something different from that, so she wasn't really baptized. She had to be baptized in the Christian faith. And there's lots of questions you might have about nuns, and maybe this clarified some of it. Now, the next book we're going to read is a mystery. It's called Trixie Belden and the Mysterious Code. And oh no, it looks like their club that they have, the Bob Whites, might be disbanded by their school. It sounds pretty scary. But there's something in here about a secret code they keep on finding. It reminds me kind of of the Sherlock Holmes and the secret code. But that's our next one. And join us for that. Mm -hmm. 